we will get after it. We want to thank you for submitting questions to us. Uh, we weren't able to fit in all that was sent in. Um, we say this every year. We'll say it again. If you have a pressing theological question and you don't have a church home, you don't have a pastor that you would want to ask, we would love to serve you however we can. You can email uh, the church with your question for us, and we would um, put a pastor on that to, to try to answer that for you. Why don't we start off with... Um, a little bit more of a get-to-know-you kind of question. Uh, Don and Dave, you guys are both um, integrally involved in ministries outside your local church and your job, in the case of Don with seminary. Uh, for Don, that's the Gospel Coalition, and with Dave, that's the Simeon Trust. So would you just take maybe two minutes each and tell us how those ministries began and how God has blessed in some ways since then? Sure, uh, the Simeon Trust... Gotcha. <laughs> there, well, there's 30 seconds of the two minutes. Uh, Simeon Trust, think of it as a one-trick pony. It exists to increase a pastor's confidence and ability to handle God's Word. Two and a half day seminars around the country started in 91 when I was working with Kent Hughes we met Dick Lucas and it's basically the idea is that the people bringing their family to church and their six-year-old to church deserve better from pastors in their preparation um, so we we go to work on our preaching work in hopes of strengthening local congregations um, so now there are 41 this year offered around the country. There'll be over 15 to 1,800 pastors involved. It's international as well. It started off the back of a napkin, and I don't really know how to talk about it other than to indicate praise to God for the way he's decided to create a hunger across all kinds of denominational lines for people who want to do better in their word work. Yeah. 1,800 pastors, I wonder how many congregants that represents. Yeah, if they you track that. Know, that would be they neat. do track that. Okay, but I couldn't tell you. That's a lot of influence. Don, how about the Gospel Coalition? Well, my job is to teach at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which is a graduate seminar training people primarily for ministry of various sorts. But um, in 2002, Tim Keller, who is a Presbyterian pastor in New York City, most of you will know his name, I'm sure, uh, and I began to wonder what it would take to constitute an organization that claimed um, to be at the center of confessional, broadly reformed, evangelical ministry. Um, Fifty years earlier, people would have said that center lay in Carla F. H. Henry and Christianity Today as it then was and so on. But today we see all kinds of fragmentation in evangelicalism. Lots of people call themselves evangelicals whom no evangelical would have recognized 50 years ago and no central institutions, and so we wondered what it would take. And so it began by calling, a, we invited about 40, 40 pastors, 40 men together to pray, seek God's face, and begin to dream, think together. And eventually this led to some documents, a statement of faith, theological vision of ministry. And our first conference, which was done entirely word of mouth and, uh, and a few things on the net, had 600 people, filled a chapel at Trinity Divinity School, and, um, and that was in 2007, so it's only seven years old. Um, the roots go back to 2002, as I said. But since then, 
it's grown so that at the heart of it is the website, which gets about four to five million hits a month. And in a heavy month, when we're doing something controversial, it'll hit eight million. And um, uh, we've had 120 million different visitors in the last seven years. And of course, because the web is, is um, not uh, respecting national boundaries, uh, therefore there's stuff all over the world, and we can't even track what's going on in China. We're, ban we're banned in China, we're blocked. But um, many people can get it through VPN satellite downloads and so on. And, um, and so this is branched out into uh, national conferences, a women's conference, uh, many regional conferences. There are sister organizations that have started in Francophone Europe and German Europe, Poland, um, Australia, and sister organizations in places like Brazil and, 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 and so on. So um, it's just been wonderfully exciting, um, partly because we have seen so many young men coming. Uh, it's easy to track um, how much of the Western world is sliding on all sorts of cultural scales. That it's, it's not a very attractive thing. But at the same time that there's this slide going on, God is raising up a new generation of uh, young would-be pastors that want to be trained, want to be mentored, uh, want to plant churches in our cities, uh, want to do work in the Muslim world. Uh, They've they, they got a Calebite spirit, give me this mountain. Uh, where all this will end up, it could end up with some of us in jail. Uh, it could end up with national revival. We just have no idea. But it sure is fun. Um, it, it, it's it's a, just a great time to be alive and, and, and to serve. And uh, our perspective on it, Tim and I look at each other and, and, and say, did we, did we think up all of this in, in 2002? And the answer is, <laughs> what a joke. I mean, we had no idea where that was going. Right. And God has just right. opened up doors and things have grown and multiplied. And the most we have done is sort of come in and put some structures in place to help the thing along a little bit. And, um, and so now it's, it's stable enough that we dream dreams that we couldn't possibly have dreamed a few, a few years ago. And, wonder what the Lord will, will open up and do next. It's humbling. Uh, uh, let me add one more thing. I'll tell you what, what the, one of the most remarkable um, signs of God's blessing on it, besides the number of young folk coming through and so on, I'll tell you one of the evangelicals, not least reformed evangelicals, we can be a scrappy lot. You know? Um, somehow, we've got 52 people on our council from very diverse backgrounds. We've purposely got a, a council with Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans, African Americans, Baptists, Pado Baptists, East Coast, West Coast, small churches, big churches, and so on. And we actually love each other. <laughs> Isn't that remarkable? <laughs> Tim says that his favorite meeting is the council meeting. No, not the big conference, you know. Uh, you're getting together with brothers and praying and laughing and making plans and so on. I, I think that's wonderful. Mm. It's wonderful. Yes. May God. the Lord protect us. Yeah, yeah. Let's back up from there. Uh, Dave, why don't you start and tell us how you came to believe that the Lord was leading you to preach and teach for your life. <laughs> I was 17, having been raised in a Christian home, and uh, stood at the, at the classic fork in the road, the world that uh, was of my own making and the world I had been reared in in Christian faith and had been pegged for leadership in Christian things, whether it be campus life or FCA or my youth group, I called my best friend and said, I'm done. I'm not doing the faith thing. Uh, I'm out. He encouraged me to call uh, 
a guy that worked for campus uh, or for I can't remember the name of the organization now. <laughs> it's a young life, but what is it? Campus Crusade? No, it's high campus school. Campus Life? Campus Life, yeah. yeah. And uh, he sat me down and he said, this is very clear. You're going, you're, go, you're going to go this way, like wisdom literature. You're going to go this way, uh, and it's going to lead you to death. You're going to go this way. It'll lead you to life. Uh, I committed my life to Christ. Instantaneously, my conversion to Christ in a real way uh, was embedded in a call to lead and teach and, and that thing for him. So those things were united for me. Yeah. How about you, Don? Well, I'm, I'm the son of the mats. So my, my, my father was a, a pastor. I, I just don't remember any time when we didn't sing hymns and memorize scripture and have family devotions and all that. But um, uh, I made a profession pretty early on. Um, when I was at university, I was studying chemistry and mathematics. My intention was at McGill University in, in Montreal. My intention was to go and do organic synthesis at Cornell. I, and this was not in rebellion against God. I expected to give money to the church and help in youth groups. And, but I, I, wasn't, I wasn't heading into the ministry. And, um, and then there, was a, there were a number of things that happened all at once. Um, I spent some months working in an air pollution project in a research lab for the federal government in Ottawa. And as I looked around the lab, um, all my coworkers were, were in two camps. They were either older dudes that could hardly wait to retire, or there were younger dudes who, think that, who thought that they deserved a Nobel Prize. Um, and I, I wasn't in either camp. I mean, I, I was having fun. It was a good project. I had a good budget. It was a blast. Um, but at the same time, where my heart was tugged, I, I was working up the valley with an, another guy, a single guy, who was trying to plant a church up there. And on the weekends, I would go up and help him and teach Sunday school class. And, and, and that's where my heart was going increasingly. And as the, um, the months wore on, I could remember a chorus that I had learned as a child. Uh, by and by, when I look at his face, beautiful face, thorn-shadowed face. By and by, when I look at his face, I'll wish I had given him more. Wow. And... Um, so I could picture myself coming before the Lord on the last day and saying, here's my chemistry. Now, my theology is sufficiently um, embedded with vocationalism to right. know that God calls some people right. to be airline pilots and chemists and garbage collectors and all the rest. But for me, that was pretty moving. And then in September of that year, I heard a missionary by the name of Wilkinson who had served most of his life in, amongst the poorest of the poor in Haiti. And he preached um, from Ezekiel 22. I sought for a man to stand in the gap before my, for my people, but I found none. And that was my call. So I finished my degree and started picking up some classical um, Greek and this little thing in preparation for seminary on the side and eventually went to seminary and, and intended to do church planting. All my, I planted two or three churches and, and then became pastor of another one. And then the Lord took another shift and I landed up at university to do a PhD. That was not part of the plan. I had no intention of going to Cambridge. Um, the Lord dumped me into that one too. And so when students come to me and say, how did you plan your life to get to this point? <laughs> I just laugh at them. What? None of us do. I had no intention of coming south of the 49th parallel. Now, I'm sure for you that is hard to believe. What, doesn't everybody want to live south of the 49th? I had no desire to live south of the 49th. Sorry, I didn't, you know. But the Lord dumped me in a trinity, too. Uh, what, what can I say? That's another story. And um, here I am, still surprised by grace. 
Yeah. You know, I, I, was, uh, I was with Dick Lucas years ago, uh, 1996, in his living room, and I said, so how did God's plan for you unfold? How did you orchestrate the Proclamation Trust, St. Helens, the congregations? He got up in, from his chair, walked to the bookshelf, pulled a biography of Abraham Lincoln off, came down, sat down, opened it up, and said, this is Lincoln. I confess plainly that I have never controlled events. They have always controlled me. And he closed it, and he said, that's how God has ruled my life. <laughs> but it's, it's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, 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 it sure is. He has his plan for us. Yeah. There's no way on God's green earth that any of us can sort of look back and said, watch me. This is how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. We're too busy laughing. <laughs> All right, let's talk about preaching. Let's uh, return to this definition of preaching, or at least what preaching is and, and isn't. Uh, is evangelism preaching, or is preaching only Sunday morning pulpit that's done by the preaching pastor? How about you, Don? Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, there is... Uh, Good preaching and average preaching is bad. So, if, if you're if you're declaring the gospel in a topical way that is not based on text and so on, it's still preaching. It's not expository preaching, but it's still preaching. You're declaring the whole counsel of God focused on salvation. Um, it, it's preaching if there is an heraldic uh, exposition of the truth of Scripture, whether or not it is explicitly tied to 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 specific texts or not. Now, what I want to push for, however, is more, more expository preaching, where you're actually unpacking text, a text or texts, to explain what is actually there, and in that framework to get across the whole counsel of God with unction and so on. And so, of course, when you're doing evangelism, uh, whether you're doing it on a university campus or on a Sunday morning or what, whatever, it still, it still is preaching. But there is an heraldic element, uh, um, an announcing element in preaching. The, the Bible has other words. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Uh, there, there, there is a sharing. Of, there is bearing witness to Christ. There, there are a lot of things that you do. But there is a pretty driving emphasis on the centrality of announcing, euangelizmi, of, of heralding, of preaching. Uh, that that uh, is, is pretty, pretty central. But it is not tied exclusively to Sunday morning or a particular time or a particular service or anything like that. I would want to say that when the church gathers, one of its primary purposes in gathering is to gather together, as we've heard, uh, under the Lord, under the Word, in order to hear the voice of God. And Word-based services will be interested to see how the Word is shaping the music, how the Word is shaping the prayers, how the Word is shaping the preaching, how the Word is shaping the responses, and, and, and so on. That's, that's, that's right. That's, that's good. So we're hearing the voice of God, and God is hearing our voices. We lift our prayers and petitions to Him. Um, but but that, that happens in, likewise in the best family devotions, too, where there is an heraldic element of the exposition of Scripture, there is a kind of announcement that's going. So you don't want to think of preaching in, in, um, in, in, in sort of official roles. It's a, it's a function rather than officialdom. One thing I think I would encourage, too, is for the, for the preaching pastor, since that's the question's kind of geared to that limited engagement, I think it would be good for us over the next 15 years to find multiple venues weekly to uh, be speaking about the gospel. Yeah. 
whether it be uh, regularly sustained businessmen's groups or starting something, you know, downtown or, you know, whatever it might be. We need, we need to find ourselves into greater interpersonal strategic elements where dialogue is taking place, where a reasoning of a different order is taking right. place, where this kind of Athenian uh, discourse, uh, at least the ideas behind it, uh, would, would flourish. Um, we're limited to think if that's all we're supposed to do is talk on Sunday one time. Yeah. And, and, and moreover, there's a danger for preachers who spend all of their lives ministering to Christians, speaking to Christians in Christian church meetings and this sort of thing, that, that they lose the ability to have the common touch with people who are not Christians. Right. So I think that ministers with Dave need to find venues where audiences are hostile, yeah. or at least neutral, or careless. Um, and for some, that might be your own congregation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, I mean, what, what I do, and I mean, I, I, teach, I teach Christians heading for the ministry all week, and then on weekends, I'm, I'm in Albuquerque, for goodness sake, you know, a bunch of Christians again. This, this is very disappointing. Um, so so, so um, I purposely, um, uh, I, I have a list of priorities in terms of what kind of invitations I accept, and... Um, University missions is very high on the priority. And so even when we were in the San Francisco Bay Area Regional for TGC, uh, we linked that to a mini mission at Berkeley. We've done that twice now. So I want those kinds of things. They're the kinds of things that keep me honest and able to track what's changing in society. And those things besides speaking, um, that we always open up to Q&A. And the, 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 that, you keep doing those things and you find out what's going on in the universe. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, but I, I should say this, that when I do university missions or missions in, in, in cities or, or, or whatever, uh, always, 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 I still make them expository. Now, people don't bring their Bibles. They don't have Bibles. But we put the text on the screen or we put them on their chairs and uh, I give a little bit of background. It's, 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 it, Christians have always been people of the book. And what we've done is printed out a little part of the book so I can introduce you to some things that Christians think and why they think it. You try to make it as user-friendly as possible and then expound scripture. So um, I, I don't think that you have to say that because you're dealing with biblical illiterates, therefore you can't do expository preaching. You can. That's a good you point. just have to explain a little more. Yeah. That's all. Yeah, why not? Yeah, Dave, something you and I talked about after your talk is you said that Acts 17 there, that that's exceptional compared with the rest of what we see in scripture regarding preaching. Uh, so yeah. you'd see Acts 17 as one of these sort of bonus things, not a model for preaching pastors in their pulpits. Is that true? Well, um, the context itself is nothing like uh, the gathering of God's people. Um, so there's, there's some significant differences. Um, but I'm glad, it's, I'm glad it's in the scripture. I'm glad that Acts, you know, that Luke puts that right in the middle, the hinge of the entire book you have this thing you have to explore and examine that takes you out of your uh, comfort zone, yeah. um, at least from many people's perspective, yeah. yeah. If you compare and contrast the sermon in City and Antioch in Acts 13, where he's dealing with biblical literates, and the sermon in Athens, where he's dealing with biblical illiterates, almost all the differences are explained. Mm -hmm. uh, where you're dealing with biblical illiterates, uh, you've got to explain more to establish the framework in which alone Jesus makes sense. If you're in a polytheistic city, there's not just one God, 
lots of gods, where the gods are more or less like up and sleeping like us, sleeping around and having Oedipus complexes and bumping each other off, and they have their own domains, and a lot of religion is a sort of tit-for-tat, you scratch my back, I scratch your back, and, and, and that's what they understand by religion. Boy, you, it's not just a question of writing the Christian truth on a blank hard disk. You've got a lot of corrupted files there you've got to get rid of, too. Mm-hmm. And, and so God is not like that. He's like this. And God made us, so we're responsible to Him. And, and, and he, he made the whole human race that, that way. The first century, first century uh, Greco-Romans uh, thought that different tribes had different Genesis stories. You, you, you know? so they, and, and nobody thought that theirs was the only possible way. And, and he, on so many fronts, but Paul's got to build a whole structure in which alone Jesus can make sense. And today, um, when the average person, if he or she believes anything at all to, today, is what Christian Smith calls... Um, Moralistic therapeutic deism, MTD. <laughs> you, you, you know, you get what you deserve, and God sort of keeps score, and and God wants you to be happy, and uh, and uh, he, He's not interested in your life normally, but you can pray to Him, um, and He might give you help, and and that's what a lot of people think Christianity is about. Wait, a lot of corrupted files there, and you you got to put a lot of stuff in place before you can talk about the gospel. If, if you're evangelizing in, in, in a generation that is as far removed from the Scripture as that. And, uh, Dave is exactly right. Acts 17 is, is foundational for showing us a bit of the way in which it must be done. The parallel, the parallel to Acts 17 is not Acts 13. It's the book of Romans. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right, so while we're on this topic of Acts and sermons in Acts, uh, someone asked, it seems like the sermons and acts are pretty short. Why do so many modern preachers preach so long? <laughs> it wasn't someone from Desert Springs Church that asked that, but... Uh... <laughs> wow. That should be an easy answer. That's I'm a quick starting one. to process, okay, did they think I was preaching long and so they no, wrote no. the question? Um, I actually wasn't preaching, but you know what I mean. Um, First of all, those are summaries. So we don't have the full what was said. You got, you got the bones. So you got some bones and a lot more would have been done. Uh, otherwise, you can finish his discourse in the Athenian before the Areopagus. It was a four-minute talk. So I, I can't imagine that that's actually what it was. I think he had to make an argument. He had to prove it. He had to solidify it. He probably had to back up. Uh, they weren't so, in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, it was a different, different thing. culture. So that, that's one thing. I will say this about contemporary preaching. It's not so how long your pastor preaches as it is there should be an arc of expectation between the pastor and the congregation. And if you as a pastor are violating what is the normally understood arc of what this is in this church, then you're going you're gonna to bounce yourself into trouble. Um, so that, I have some friends that preach almost an hour every week, and their congregations are happy and healthy, and they love it. Uh, I preach between 32 minutes and probably 38 minutes. Now, if I stretch it out, it might be 45, but when I do that, I actually feel like I've violated that rhythm of our life together, and I can hear about it. Um, so it's really more of expectation than it is what's correct. You should throw on on that. You know, you get to see this a lot more. It's partly expectational, right? And, and that is culture dependent 
and individual history. I mean, um, uh, in French Canada, when I grew up, um, Baptist pastors got thrown in jail. I was beaten up as a maudit protestant. It was pretty, pretty ruthless. As recently as 1972, we only had 35 churches and a population of six and a half million, none of them with more than 40 people. And then in eight years, we grew from um, uh, 35 churches to 500. And there was taste of revival. I can remember preaching for an hour and a half and people mm -hmm. asking for more, then getting down on their knees to pray and praying till midnight and beyond. And, and so nobody was saying, hey, it was over, th over 38 minutes, you know, time out. So, so there are a lot of different dynamics. You go to, to a culture like Africa, uh, like most countries in Africa, it's not Africa as if Africa is one culture, but many, many countries in, in Africa, um, oh, starting on time is different and ending is very different. It drives me and, nuts. And, and so, so, you know, there are different expectations. You, you go to Russia. And the church services are long, long. If you ask for people, anybody wants to quote any verses, they'll want, they'll want to quote chapters at you. I mean, it, it's, it's, so they're different expectations. And then you mentioned Dick Lucas. He, he's, he's got a judgment on this one, too. What he used to, what he used to say is, um, he probably still says it. He's 89 now, but he's still preaching. Um, and uh, what he says is, some people are 20-minute preachers. Some people are 30-minute preachers. Some people are 40-minute preachers. Some people are hour preachers. And he said, the problem is that most people think they're longer preachers than they are. He says, if you're a 20-minute preacher, prepare your sermon, then shut up after 20 minutes, you know? But if you're an hour preacher and people are still gripping the seat of your, their, their chairs, they, 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 then, then you're robbing the people if you don't give them their hour. So I, I, I can think of a man, he's just recently gone home to glory from, from uh, Mark Ashton at, at yeah. Staggs. Uh, in, in my view, he was one of the best 25-minute preachers I ever heard. He was, he was just stunningly good in 20, 23 to 25 minutes. He was just very able. A couple of times we invited him to speak at a conference who was expected to speak for 45 minutes. He was, eh, so-so. <laughs> you know? Whereas Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, it took him 10 minutes to get his motors going. You, you know? I can remember hearing him, and for my sins, thinking in my youthful arrogance, this guy's overrated. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and then 10 minutes in, he had me, and suddenly an hour had gone by, and I'd met with God. And w w what do you do? There's such different... You, know, you can't establish rules with that kind of complexity, you know? Mm, yeah. So the variations in gift and in, um, in, in expectation and in culture and maturity and all, all kinds of things. Every preacher would do well to remember the words of Mike Bullmore, though. A sermon is not a storage container for everything you learned this week about your text. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's exactly right. Yeah. All right, so we might come back to preaching, but uh, I want to get uh, these two questions covered that are related. Um, what in the broader evangelical culture or evangelical church today in the U.S. is concerning to you, and then what is encouraging to you? Let's start with what's concerning. Dave, what's concerning to you about the broader evangelical church today in America? I'm not concerned about anything. <laughs> I'm really not. I, now, I know that that's going to maybe sound naive, but, or maybe it's my own temperament. Um, I'm bullish. I get, you know, I see hundreds of pastors every year. There's an army of young men who are eager to do good work, working on their work. Um, God knows how to take care of his church. Um, it's going to roll. He's, he's got stuff he's got to get done. That's why the sun rises. 
When the sun stops rising, he's accomplished his work in the world. So in, in that sense, and most of the things that feel concerning, they end up dying away and going away anyway. Um, so I, I know that's short-sighted and incomplete, so you could probably <laughs> actually correct it. <laughs> I'm afraid I will, brother. <laughs> no, I mean, I agree with the heart and I agree with the sentiment. And when we get to the things that we're bullish about, we probably sh share the same bullishness. And some people are glass half empty, glass half full, and anything. Yeah. There are a lot of factors like that. My wife is glass half empty, and I'm glass half full. It's a good marriage. And I'm all full. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but well, I would say that, that, that uh, uh, after all, even in the New Testament, uh, Paul could point to things that concerned him in, yeah. in churches. And so he, con he was concerned with doctrinal deviation, for example, in Galatians. And, and, and getting the eschatology wrong and therefore the work ethic wrong in mm. Thessalonica and getting all kinds of things wrong to do with morals and, and with, with doctrine and with legal context and bad relationships in Corinth and, and on and on. So there are things that, that, that even in the first century you could point to and say, yeah, these are things that concern me. Yeah, that's good. And, and after all, the apostle Paul himself, when he lists in 2 Corinthians 11 the things that concern him or his experience, he says, on top of everything else, my care for all the churches. And one of the things he lists, uh, in danger from false brothers. So, so, so I think yeah, it's good. right to yeah. identify things yeah. that are going on that are, are, are concerning. And um, uh, so, I mean, in no particular order of, um, of priority, there's a lot of health, wealth, and prosperity gospel around. Uh, there, there's a lot of very um, uh, human-centered religion. Uh, God exists to serve us. There's still a lot of that around. Um, there's a lot of um, whooped-up um, um, joy rather than the joy of the Lord, uh, manipulative forms of, of spirituality, um, a drift towards a kind of mysticism that is not gospel-centered, mm -hmm. that is even removed from Christ, closer to Julian of Norwich than it is to Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, um, then, then, then there's the increasing encroachment of things in the world so that the church itself is increasingly buying into the new definitions of, of tolerance. Um, the, the city church in, in San Francisco just this week announced that it was uh, uh, no longer going to say that it's wrong um, f for that you couldn't be a member of that church if you're a practicing homosexual in a covenant relationship. Um, uh, so so uh, there, all these things are going on all around us and, 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 and a whole lot more. Um, there, there is rising biblical illiteracy that's been tested again and again and again. Um, what Christian Smith calls MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism. Um, these things are happening. But in the midst of all of this stuff, all part of a culture in decline, there is the next question. What's encouraging? Yeah, now it's your turn. <laughs> he already answered, he said everything. <laughs> There's a hunger for the Word of God everywhere. Um, there are young people that handle the Word of God very capably. Um, I, I see even within the African-American church uh, where I have some dear friends, a strong expository movement. If you want to know where the next generation of biblical expositors are, they're in the black church. Um, so I guess, I'm, and you're right, all those other things are existing. And, but, but I'm encouraged by the hunger for the Word, the growth in the Word, the people that are being raised up to handle the Word. At that limited slice of things, wow, I, I feel good. And within that framework also, 
uh, more church planting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and sometimes, and, and not just in white suburbia. Yeah. Um, uh, Christians taking the lead in inner city work of one kind or another. All over. Um, all over. And, and that's all over. And, and this isn't just in America. It's, it's strong in America, but, but there are movements, often very small, the size of a man's hand in a cloud, you, you, you know, but, but, but there's the beginnings of stuff in France. There's the beginnings of stuff in, in, um, in, in, in several European countries. Um, I, I don't know where it's going, but it, it is encouraging. And, and uh, uh, recently, three of us uh, went to three cities in Japan. Japan is death warmed over in terms of hmm. gospel work. But, 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 but once again, in three cities, we totaled about uh, 1,500 people that we talked to. The whole evangelical movement in Japan is only about 15,000. I mean, it, it, wow. it was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and again, younger people asking questions. So uh, who knows what the Lord will do? Uh, some of us look back to the great revival that started in, in uh, New York City in, in 1857 and it spread, really. Uh, the Lord doing simultaneous things in, in, in several countries. Uh, maybe the Lord will do it again. Now, he may not. Right. Um, he may not. There may be a, a small spurt and then a lot of judgment. Uh, but pray that the Lord will keep the leaders um, loving each other, caring for each other, being faithful to the gospel, uh, dealing with issues, but, but, but not fearing, bold, but not uh, obnoxious, um, faithful, but not arrogant. Um, who, who knows what, what the Lord will do yet? So um, I am less discouraged today. Well, put it positively. I'm far more encouraged today than I was 15 years ago. We'll, we'll put it that way. Far more. Praise God. In that, in the face of potential persecution, yes. loss of liberty, et cetera. Even though all the social uh, yeah. markers are heading in one direction, because of these other things that are happening, you just have to rejoice. I mean, mm. what, what can you do? So in that sense, we're pretty close to the same page after all. Yeah, so in Canada, so, you know, you, you go to a preaching workshop, and I'm working with David Short. He's lost his building. Mm. It's all been taken away, been defrocked, can't preach in a Ang Canadian Anglican church in the country, neither can Packer. And yet their guys are coming, their young guys are all coming to the preaching workshop and they already know that by their affiliation with them and with this work, their seminaries will not train them. And all these things are like the pressure, but these, they've counted the cost already. It's done. They know where they're going. They've made their decisions. How can you not be encouraged? Yeah. And there, there's similar pressures in Scotland today. Scotland is again, death warmed over. But, but there's some guys standing up and losing their church buildings over it and starting their own institutions and, and calling a new generation for I mean, it's, it's really quite exciting to be parts of these things, you know? This is, this is not just yeah. one church. I mean, yeah. you're right. Yeah. St. John Shaughnessy, that church is, is one. But, but in the coalition, one of our members it was pastor of uh, the, 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 the Falls Church. John Yates. Their facilities were worth about $42 million dollars. They walked away from the whole thing because they, they weren't going to compromise on, on moral issues and so on. St. George Tron in, in Glasgow. St. George's Tron, right. that's right. I saw a picture where the whole congregation was gathered in their aisles taking a picture as they were getting kicked out of their building because they held firm to the gospel. It was their last Sunday. I mean, what a tragic picture, yeah. but that church is thriving in Glasgow. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so. and, and when they left uh, St. John Shaughnessy in New York, in, uh, in Vancouver, the last thing they did before they left was paint the church and clean it all up so it was really oh. nicely left for the people who were taking over the building. I mean, those things speak volumes, you know. Yeah. And God is no man's debtor. And at the end of the day, don't you believe that the church is the people anyway? It's not the building. 
And so it helps to, what happens when these things happen is, is, that, uh, is, is that you lose uh, the high percentage of nominal Christians. Yeah. Because it's costing more, you're beginning to, we're still losing more, more people globally in our churches than we're gaining them. But the, the losses are of nominalism. Yeah. And the gains are yeah. vital yeah, we, and yeah, real. we didn't have them to begin with. We didn't really have them in any sort of... So you're not concerned? Uh, I'm not really all that concerned, you know? It's... <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so, so you, you you see the you, you see the bigger picture, and you can't help but praise but uh, but quietly praise God that through these miserable things, God is purifying His church. Yeah. Who wants to complain about that? Yeah, good stuff. All right, someone asked that you talk about the possible tension between, on the one hand, someone desiring, even praying for their pastor to preach with more power, unction, and clarity, and on the other hand the need for contentment for the preacher they currently have. And I'll confess that this was actually submitted by a DSC staff member who I hope was speaking in hypothetical terms. <laughs> so let me just get it down where I can handle this. So the question is, I wish my pastor had more passion or is it unction? Is it power, is it, clarity? I, I wish they had more juice. Clarity There's as a well. biblical category. Yeah, that's for precision. Yeah. Yeah. Dave doesn't um, like unction. Tell us why you don't like unction, Dave. Sit, pause there. Well, because I so often preach and don't feel I have it. I'm tired of chasing it. I'm chasing fidelity. <laughs> but, but unction is not necessarily something that you feel. You can have unction without feeling it. Okay, so ex explain to us Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' ideas on unction yeah. and then relate that to the question. That would help me. Yeah, we're sort of off topic here. Yeah, that's all right. This is getting better. <laughs> no. yeah. when, I, when I wrote my book, Showing the Spirit, um, Elizabeth Catherwood, who's Lloyd-Jones' oldest daughter, yeah. she, she and her husband, Fred, Fred has just died recently of Alzheimer's. Um, she, she came to me and she said, um, you really have understood my father's view on the spirit. Um, Lloyd-Jones was dead by this time, but... Uh, his, his views were sufficiently nuanced that they weren't easily cubbyholed. Do, hmm. do, 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 do you know what I mean? So that he, um, and I didn't agree with them all either for that matter. For, for example, the sealing of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, he takes to be a second right. blessing kind of thing that endues you with power and, 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 and so on. But it could be a third or fourth or a fifth blessing. Um, but he wants, uh, when he first went to a Billy Graham um, uh, evangelistic outreach in Wembley Stadium, uh, he, he was appalled not by people going forward. What appalled him was that it was, it was so what Marshall McLuhan would call cool. There, there wasn't the intensity of people under the conviction of sin, uh, crying out to God for mercy, and, 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 and so on. Now, that might have been a bit stylized, looking too much at the 18th century revivals, but, but you understand where he's coming from. Uh -huh. He sees the mark of the Spirit in people who, who, as a result of the ministry of the word, uh, come under a real conviction of sin and see the clarity of the cross and so on and so on. And preachers who produce that effect um, uh, are particularly endued with unction. So uh, regardless of what you feel, I mean, there, there are yeah. certainly times when I preached and felt I was pretty useless 
and pretty dead and so on. And then, then somebody's got converted and it's, it's touched a whole lot of people's lives and other times when for my sins I thought, boy, that one wasn't too bad after all. And, and I really needed to be slapped down because at the end of the day, the, the sermon is not an art form to be admired. It, right. It, right. It, it, it's, it's a message delivery system um, designed by God and unless, uh, unction simply means anointing. You, you, you need to have the anointing of the Spirit of God. Um, uh, for the illumination to take place that brings conviction of sin and clarity regarding who Jesus is. And that's regardless of what you feel. That's helpful. Is now, it can slightly, you tackle the question? Is it slightly more objective to talk about precision, clarity, and passion? Yeah, but you can have more precision without necessarily having anointing. Yeah. And, and, and passion, uh, I'm, I'm worried about passion. I'd rather talk about authentic intensity. Yeah. Okay. Be because passion sometimes is tied with a certain kind of style. Yeah. You, you, know, you know, someone like John Piper, you know, he's yeah. intense. I mean, he's weighed it all out and he's prepared it. And, and you sometimes wonder where he's going at the beginning of a sermon. And I think, John, what, what are you doing? And then suddenly it, it explodes in front of you. And he sees stuff in the text I should have seen. I've never seen that before. Boy, that's right. I, and he, and you, you've met with God. I mean, that, that's his style. And, and it, it, it's gifted and... and his little book on, what's it called? The speaking? Supremacy of the Prime. No, no, oh, that, that one's a good one. It's a very recent one called something like Speaking, speaking Beautifully, Thinking Beautifully. It's, it's, it's on the, the, the gifts of, of artistic creation in sermons and so on as well. It's all part of this intensity. And then there's Tim Keller, who wears a beat-up corduroy jacket and looks like a Midwestern college professor and sticks his hand in his pocket and says, well, I guess what I'd say is something along these lines. And, and, and yet there's, there, there can be an intensity that's marked by authenticity in what he says and the way he puts his words together and so on. It's a, so I, one, you would say, he's got passion. The other one doesn't. But, but both hold crowds in a spellbinding way and articulate the gospel. So I'm worried about using the passion category. All right, I got, I got, I got a way to word it now. Okay. Uh, some people should be rightly discontent with the preaching ministry of their church. Yes. Some people should be wrongly discontent. Where's that line? The danger of being wrongly, if you've really got a good, good ministry there, that doesn't mean that you should stop praying for them. So it's not that the only time you pray for your minister is because he's doing so badly. The only thing that's going to save him is if... <laughs> help him. Yeah. Help him. And, and help me too, Lord, by helping him because it's getting harder and harder to listen to this dude. Uh, um, you, you know, but, but rather in, in the New Testament, it's, it's surprising how often prayers are offered up for things that are working, yeah. not just for things that are not working. Yeah. So you thank God for the ministry you've got and you pray that it'll improve and be preserved and, and, and anointed with even more blessing and, 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 and so on. So uh, you must not think that praying for your minister is the sort of thing that you do just because the poor, poor guy really can't string two sentences together or whatever. Um, uh, I, I like the idea it, yeah. of praying for him. So I, I think what I would say to that person is, first of all, appreciate your pastor for the temperament he has. Yeah. Yeah. Secondly, then pray for him that he would be captivated by the text in a way that uh, was earth-shaking within him and within the confines of his own person. And then continue to pray that you would have a pastor that would be more than just earth-shaking, uh, where, you know, this text commands me, but pray for a pastor who actually has command of the text. So you want both of those. 
um, and your pastor. Could I go a stage far, farther? Absolutely. I think that you and I and a whole lot of others that are concerned with the renovation and restoration of expository preaching in this day, we, we often speak of, um, uh, of the text and the authority of the text. And, Yet, yet there's, there is at least some danger that we become so text-focused we somehow lose sight of Christ. Yeah. Um, uh, we, we can do it with the word gospel, too. Um, there's a generation that comes along, he's a gospel man, he's a gospel this, he's a gospel that, he's gospel something else. I want, where, is he a Christ man? Mm. Do, 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 do you know? Right. So, so you, you, you want to keep, keep saying that the text brings us to Christ, the text brings us to the gospel, the text brings us to, to the cross. One of the things that I do with my students when I teach the book of Acts is to tell them to go through the book of Acts and highlight all the different ways that the book of Acts speaks of how people become Christians, what language is used. That's great. And then <clears throat> make it their aim over a semester to incorporate all those different ways of talking in their conversation. For, for example, not once does the book of Acts say he received Jesus as his personal savior. Well, I don't mind if somebody uses that, but on the other hand, why is that gotta be the only way when Acts doesn't even use it once? And then Acts 13, 48 says, and as many as were ordained to be saved believed. Man, I'd like to hear that at the end of a crusade. <laughs> How are the numbers? Oh, it was wonderful. As many as were ordained to be saved believed. But, but that's a New Testament way of speaking. So if we don't use the New Testament ways of speaking, our theology gets reduced to the categories we do use. You see? And the same is true, I would say, in preaching and in every domain. We, we ought to be finding ways in which we don't get locked into just talking about textual stuff and, re, and forget the, talking about the cross or the atonement or the love of God or Christ himself. And, and, and we've, got, we, we, we've got to keep renewing ourselves by this very text, which, which needs to keep reforming our, our use of language. And our use of language partly helps to shape our theology. That's good. Well, I've got more questions for you guys. Um, we could keep asking you questions, um, I think, for a long time. Um, we sure appreciate your wisdom on this. And, uh, we appreciate you guys being with us for this weekend, um, along with Pastor Begg, who's probably in the air right now. Um, thank you for leaving your spouses and your churches and being with us. We've been blessed. Well, let me just say, too, that since I, I won't be here tomorrow morning, uh, I have to get back. But uh, thank you, Ryan and Trent and everyone at this church. Uh, I just pray that God will continue to bless this region of the country. And thanks for all the gifts that you are giving to it and the invitation to come. Appreciate and from the perspective of the coalition, uh, thanks to Ryan and Trent for their leadership in the Southwest District. Uh, I'm sure that there are quite a number of pastors and others here who are grateful for the way they pulled you guys together and uh, made some of these things possible. Well, by God's grace. Let me take that opportunity to thank about 130 volunteers from <laughs> Desert Springs Church that made this happen this weekend, in uh, all quarterback by Trent. So. All right, and we want to thank also our sponsors and partners that have been with us, and the books and resources room will be open for another half hour um, to, after we let out here. But we're going to end this evening with prayer. And so I'm going to ask Frank Melizzo if we can make room for Frank up here. You guys, how about this? How about you guys step down if you would?
And Frank Melizzo, pastor of uh, Mountain Christian Church in Cedar Crest, is going to come up for a minute or two and, um, and pray a, a prayer of application based on some of the prayers and, or some of the passages and themes that we've been talking about um, this weekend. So, Frank, thanks for being a part of TGC Albuquerque. And he, Frank used to be a youth minister here at Desert Springs Church long before I was ever here. And uh, it's neat to see what God's doing over there. Close this out, Frank. Let us pray. O Lord our God, you assemble your people. Let your church be a place where your voice is heard. May we come to hear you speak and to submit to your word. Grant us wonder at your wisdom, for, Lord God, your word is dazzling. Help us marvel at your grace that you would speak to us. For we were deaf, Lord God, but you made us hear your word. Lord, we will take the gospel to our world. We know there will be conflict. We know that we will be marginalized. But we want the gospel to go forth. Make us bold, for we love your work. And Lord God, we love your glory. Help us gossip the gospel, for these truths are the power of God unto salvation. O oh Lord, grant that our lives would keep the word central. Lord, grant that our churches would keep the word central. Lord, we pray, grant that our pulpits would keep the word central. Grant that we would never grow weary of the gospel, that we would be never more enamored with anything else besides or above or beyond the gospel, but in all things to the gospel for your glory, that we would revel in the multifaceted glories of the cross. Your word has slain us. It has given us life. And so because you are God and you have spoken, we are now content in you and content to hear your voice. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. This is all to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.